1 John 3, 1 and 2. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we will be has not been made known, but what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. And then the story of two people becoming the children of God, which is kind of fun, on the road to Emmaus, which is from Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Clopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these few days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, uh, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets uh, have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they were approaching the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Then they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. The two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Shalom be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do your doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. May God be blessed in the reading of his holy scriptures this morning. So as I was introducing last week, I have a, a theory, and I think it's uh, fairly accurate, uh, that, that Jesus inaugurates a shalom-making community. That's the point of Jesus, to introduce or reintroduce into the world shalom, peace, everything the way it should be. That's why Jesus walks into the space and says, shalom be with you, that he is bringing his shalom, he is bringing his peace to bear upon it. 
And, and if we walk through Jesus' life, you'll see what that shalom looks like. It's being among the most broken, elevating those from the margins, challenging those in power. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, the valleys come up and the mountains come down and life will be abundantly. That's what Jesus says in John, that there will be life abundantly for everybody. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should all be children of God. Isn't that exciting? That's an amazing mission. That's an amazing picture of what it should be and what it could be. Now, the problem is most of us have made it smaller than it should be. Most of us made it smaller than it should be. As you probably know, I became a Christian in my early 20s. And as, a, as somebody who, who came to faith from other faith background, what I wanted to demonstrate right away about this Christianity was it was true. I wanted to be right. Did anybody else feel like that or still feel like that? Yeah, that, that they wanted their Jesus to be the only way. They wanted to be right about everything. And a lot of that was about control. A lot of it was about control, and a lot of it, if, if you go through therapy, you'll find out is all of these fears inside of you, this little child inside of you that's struggling to just belong, but it comes out in, in ways that we need to control things. We need to have everything in little packages, and I had my God in little packages, little controllable packages, and one of the things in which I found God most controllable was I call this the Word of God, and it was in this, the Word of God, that my interpretation of this, the Word of God, was the only interpretation of this, the Word of God. I have since learned that according to this book, this is not the only Word of God. Jesus is the only word of God, and he, Jesus is revealed in this book, which is good, but Jesus is also revealed in a whole other a lot of places. He actually says in this book that he is revealed in creation, that he's revealed in others, that he's most clearly revealed in the impoverished. Isn't that exciting stuff? This is really exciting. But at that point, I thought that I had control over God. I thought I had control over Jesus because my interpretation of this book was the only way to read this book. And I had it very, very small little packages. And because of that, I had two questions, two things, two ways of reading this book that were kind of the symbolic ways. And if you believed these two things, you, like me, were right. Did anybody else feel like this ever when they were reading their Bible? Nobody. Okay, good. So my two questions then, not now by the way, were, is creation a seven literal day creation? That was my first question. And should women not be teaching in the church ever? Those were my two questions. Because I believed in a few places in, in Timothy and other Ephesians that women should be totally silent and men should do all the teaching. I don't believe that now. In fact, I'm quite the opposite now, even though I'm a man preaching. Okay, let's mess that one up. Anyway, so I believed that then. I believed it was very clear. So because it was very clear in my mind, I must be right. Therefore, if you disagreed with me, you were wrong. And I had the view of the Christianity and the view of Jesus that was right. I also believed in a seven literal day creation. I believed the world was 6,000 years old and that's all that could possibly be. There was no other way that you could interpret scripture. In fact, if you did, you're a heretic. That's what I thought then. Is anybody else following me on this type of stuff? Thank you, a few of you. Beautiful. 
So, I, with all of this pompous arrogance, I went to seminary. That's a good place to deal with your pompous arrogance, by the way, is to go to seminary and to try to learn about Scripture. So in my first year, I was really excited to figure out which profs were with me, my professors, which professors were with me, and which professors were not with me. So what I did is I bring up these two questions, and I had my favorite prof, Professor Rod Remen. Uh, he was a Greek prof. He's still one of my favorite profs to this day. He's a, an amazing teacher. He's a gentleman. He's the person... I would love to kind of aspire to be in, in some of the ways. So in my first year, I went up to him and I said, uh, Professor Remen, what is your answer to my two questions? Where do you find women in ministry? And where do you find yourself on the seven-day creation story? He looked at me and responded frankly, I hope one day you're able to choose more important beliefs to put your energy into. That's a good answer, isn't it? It wasn't a good answer for me at the time. I was, uh, I was shocked, I was overwhelmed, and I went home angry. Have you ever had anybody actually challenge you like that? Have you ever had anybody challenge you with words like that? Because that's what happens in this story, doesn't it? That's what happens in this story. These two disciples, are walking along. The two disciples are likely Clopas and his wife. And Luke is probably trying to do a retelling of an Adam and Eve type story of the, the two people, the, the, the representative male and the representative female, walking along, feeling downcast. And who walks beside them without them knowing Yahweh himself in the garden? Right? That type of imagery is kind of all through this story, and it's beautiful if you talk about it that. And then there's this acting going on. Now, as, I'm just going to do a little aside on this one. I've been told a few times that acting is something that's not very godly. I like Jesus twice in this story acts. Do you know that? He doesn't reveal himself right away. He acts like he doesn't know what's going on. Jesus, the creator of the universe, acts like nothing's going on. What else? Another time in the story that he acts? He acts like he's going further. He knows he's having supper with them. He knows, but he acts like he's going further. I just wanted to put that aside because I've been accused of being a little too actor at a times. Anyways. Let's go on with my story. So, this thing that, that they, they pour out, they pour out the story. They pour out their story. What is the thing that's been going on? Jesus acts and says, I don't know what's going on. They said, you don't know what's going on? We'll tell you what's going on. This story about Jesus. Jesus had, had this moment in, in Jerusalem where the chief priest put him up and then he was crucified and then he was murdered and, and then the, the, the oppressive state remains the oppressive state because we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And furthermore, the resurrection happens, but we don't believe it. That's kind of what he says. But what does Jesus say to that? How foolish you are and how slow you are to believe. Remember I said last week where Jesus is kind to people? This ain't kind. This is one of those boom challenge moments. This is like my prof saying to me, I hope one day you think about better things that are more important. This is Jesus saying you gotta switch what you hoped for because you're missing the point. 
And Jesus then goes through an entire Bible study of the Hebrew scriptures and lands on himself, eventually breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, the communion kind of in their brains go, oh, Jesus. And then he disappears. I love that image. And so this, this whole thing is pretty exciting. But I want to focus on this idea that they had the wrong viewpoint. They were looking at this whole story as the, the redemption of Israel, redemption of the nation, that they themselves would be involved in the great story, that they themselves would be the redeemed people, that they themselves, the nation of Israel, the triumphal nation of Israel would once again be shown to be God's triumphal nation, and once again, Jesus, their leader, would take them to that wonderful place. They missed the whole point of Jesus. They missed the whole point of Jesus, and Jesus called them on it. I love this idea that Jesus would actually call them on it. We had hoped he was going to be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Jesus had, in fact, redeemed Israel and established something afresh, but it didn't look like what they were expecting in a way, nor in the function. It didn't look like how he was bringing it about, nor what it had turned out to be. It was a whole different redemption of Israel. It was actually picking up the Deuteronomic passages that once a single obedient one of Israel was demonstrated to be obedience, the blessing to the nations, Genesis 12, would explode out to the nations. That's Acts 2. The reason that they needed to speak in tongues, languages, is because they now were going to be speaking to all the nations about the blessing to the nations. That's the redemption of Israel that actually is scriptural, but they were expecting something quite different. And why do I bring all of this up? Because I think some of the times we're expecting those differences too. I think we have some of the same philosophies built into us of what we think Jesus is all about that we still need to hear how foolish you are and how slow you are to believe. And this isn't fun, right? This is like when my Professor Remen stepped on my toes and said, you're wrong, Gil. I hope one day you think of something a bit better to think about. It was a kind of a prophetic thing, because Lord willing, that has happened in my life. And Lord willing, when we hear these ideas, we'll get challenged to hear how they can be, are already affecting us. Some of the beliefs, I believe, had to die. Some of their belief systems, the way that they saw the world, had to die. Jesus was saying that type of belief needs to stay in the grave. That type of belief doesn't need to be resurrected. Those things need to be staying in the grave. And I'm going to give you three words, and they're all ism words, but I think hopefully I'll be able to explain each one of them. They are triumphalism, exceptionalism, and nationalism. Let me go through them one at a time. Triumphalism is all about triumph. It's about winning. My side will always win. And my side will always win, you'll get closer to your deity, you get closer to your God, and you will win more, right? The closer you get to your God, the more you win, right? So we pray harder, whatever that means. Do you remember hearing that as a kid? I got told that regular, you should pray harder. Like, how do you pray hard? Like, you squint your face when you're praying? Do you pray longer? You're not supposed to do that according to scripture. So I'm not sure what praying harder is, but I got told that a lot, pray harder. All right, I'll pray harder. Anyway, so pray harder, read my Bible, and believe more. Believe harder. Believe harder. 
It doesn't work. So we got told these things about ourselves, that if we do those things, that, that we will triumph, that we will win, that we will be on God's side. The op- opposite is also true, that if you're not close to God, God is out to get you. Often called dualism, this is where we put things into extremes, where there's not a gray to this world, it's, it's extremes, and we talk about this. People are definitely good or they're evil. Things are either sacred or they're secular. There's no in-between, there's no movie that could be watched that for Christians. No, it's evil, it's bad. There's no music that's in-between, it's either good or it's bad. I remember teaching a media class, and that was the point of it, was trying to figure out what was good and what was bad. We were were always doing that. When I was younger, I sold all of my CDs that I had grown up with. Do you remember anybody else going through this phase of being a Christian where you got rid of all of the secular evil influences on your life like Van Halen? (sighs) Might as well jump. No, because that's evil. And we got told those things were evil because it's this divide over what's evil and what is good. And that if you're on the side of good, you triumph. And if you're on the side of evil, you will get crushed. Does this sound familiar? We use this language of of the church at times. We use this language of ourselves at times. I prayed, why did that person still get cancer? We're praying right now, why are we still in lockdown? Because we have this triumphalism that is built right into our theology. That if we do things hard enough and meaningful enough, we will be on the side of God and God will give us exactly what we need. That is triumphalism. And it's all nice, by the way, if you're in part of the moral majority or the economic majority, because then you can say we're obviously on the side of God because our lives are pretty good. We all have homes, we all have food regularly, and what do we then do to the people who are on the margins of society? We demonize them and say if they had only did X, Y, or Z, if they only believed harder, if they only prayed, I remember when my wife was diagnosed with depression, we got a lot of people saying, if you just prayed harder. It didn't go away. But we got told that. Because we don't know what to do when people get to the margins of society or the edges of our lives, right? It's okay if we're in the middle. It's triumphal in the middle. It's harder on the edges. So that's triumphalism. Second thing is exceptionalism. Exceptionalism is there's something God-given about me or us that guarantees that I or we are better than others. We're exceptional. We are the exceptional ones. That means that that we all kind of try to achieve a certain look, a certain way of being, that we want to be the exceptional ones. We want to be the different ones. This was what was invading the minds of the Israelites. They believed they were the exceptional ones. They were the God-given ones. And then what is Jesus doing in their midst but challenging that all the time? I talked about that last week where he brings about the idea of jubilee, that uh, the Spirit is upon me to preach good news to the poor and, and recovery of sight for the, of the blind and to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee. And what did the, the, the jubilee mean? The jubilee meant that there was going to be enough. And the Israelites would go, yay, that's us. There's going to be enough for us. And what did Jesus mean? There's going to be enough for everybody. 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should all become children of God. But no, this exceptionalism idea is that there's something about us. There's something about us that we are the representative of the divine. That we will take the message of the divine and we will take it out to the other who don't know the divine. We don't know God out there. So we bring it to the other. And we again demonize the other and uplift up ourselves. We are the exceptional ones. What does that tend to do? That we tend then to seek out, seek out homogeneity meaning we all look alike. We all act alike. We hang out in the same economic circles. We hang out with the same ethnic circles. We hang out with the same people because we are the safe ones. We are all the called ones. I remember hearing that at a, at a church when I was, become, was a, a young Christian, that certainly we wouldn't go to that part of town. Certainly we wouldn't hang out with those type of people. Certainly that person is probably too far from God. They're just going to lead you astray. We are the exceptional ones. They are not. We seek out homogeneity. We try to act like one another. We try to be like one another. We have people that are closer to the divine. In, in our culture, what does that look like? Often a heteronormative white guy. Now we're throwing a lot of things on the table, aren't we? Because this is a challenge to racism, it's a challenge to LGBTQ folks and how we treat them, and this is something that has been challenging me for a long time, that we don't get right as the church. That we have been crushing the other while we believed that we were the exceptional ones. What happens when you get a whole bunch of these people together? It's called nationalism the third aspect. Nationalism is a group of us are so exceptional that the Creator has bestowed upon this nation the unique call to save the world. That we are the unique ones. That we are called to save the world. Now, my theory is this, that this is the type of stuff that Jesus is trying to deal with when he's speaking with these people. When he calls them out, he says, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was going to be this kind of Messiah, that he was going to demonstrate that we triumph, that he was going to demonstrate that we are exceptional, that he was going to demonstrate that we, the nation of Israel, are the true nation of God. The Romans can just go to H-E double hockey sticks. Right? That's the idea behind them. That they would believe that they are so much. And he said, how slow are you? You missed the point of what I was all about the whole time. Think of triumphalism in Jesus' life. Triumphalism is, is saying that, that we, if we can do the right things, we'll get God on our side. So the, 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 the disciples in John 9, when Jesus is standing before the blind man, say, who sinned Jesus? Who was further away? Who wasn't quite triumphing? Was it this man or his parents that this man was born blind? And Jesus smashes triumphalism. Do you remember how he smashes triumphalism in this one? It's so beautiful. He says this, this happened so the works of God might be displayed in his life. Isn't that beautiful? That's what it's about. Why do things go wrong in the world? So that God would be able to show his glory. That God would be revealed. Exceptionalism, exceptionalism, all the exceptional people were gathered in Peter's mother-in-law's place. The place was so crowded that the margined person was not able to enter into the door. Who was that margined person? The man born paralyzed. 
The men born paralyzed and all the exceptional people were listening to Jesus because they were exceptional. What does Jesus do in that site, in that area? What happens in that scene? Well, the boys rip open the roof, lower the paralyzed man in front of Jesus, in front of all the exceptional people. And what does Jesus say? Your faith, your faith to the four boys made him well. Your faith made him well. Not the ones of the exceptionals, but the ones on the margins. Jesus is trying to smash these philosophies. Nationalism. Nationalism, if you read through Scripture again and again and again, you'll realize how much Jesus is trying to smash nationalism. Because the way it looked was this, that the Israelites in Jesus' day were trying to demonstrate how unique and wonderful their nation was, how unique and wonderful their little way of seeing the world was, that they upheld three different things that they would hold up Sabbath and purity regulations, and they would hold up circumcision as the three ways of demonstrating that they're the true nation of God. And if you read through Scripture, Jesus always is out to get those things. He's, he's talking about purity regulations all the time and saying that you've missed the boat on it. How do we know this? He touches the lepers. He touches the dead. He says, your purity regulations that are about you being a nation, being separate from everybody else, have held you back from love. Nationalism is just a hatred, but a love towards a tribe. When you love towards a tribe, but hate everybody else, that's nationalism. And Jesus is smashing that because behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should all be children of God. Right? Not just a few of us. All of these things had to die for the Israelites. We had hoped. We had hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But those things are different in Jesus. So Jesus switches the order. Remember bed mass in, in, in school? What is bed mass about? B-E-D-M-A-S. Young people among us, teachers among us, what is bed mass? Brackets. Exponents, division, multiplication, addition, subtraction. Do you remember bed mass? Everybody remember bed mass? What is bed mass? The order of operations. Jesus is about to do the order of operations for how things come about in the kingdom. He's about to do the order of operations for the, how they come out in the kingdom. Because if you're triumphal and you're exceptional and you're national, God is already on your side. God is showing his glory to you already. You are the exceptional ones. You are the national ones. You are the triumphal ones. You get God's glory just because of who you are. Maybe you need to pray a little harder. Maybe you need to read your Bible a little bit more. But you will always have glory first. What does Jesus say in the order of operations? Did you not notice through all the prophets that the Messiah must suffer first? and then enter his glory. Must suffer first, and then enter his glory. In other words, if you are going to be Messiah followers, Messiah translates into Greek Christ, Messiah followers, Christ followers, Christians, if we're going to be little Jesuses, little ones who follow this Messiah, 
we have to follow the same order of operations. Suffer first, then glory. Triumphalism, exceptionalism, and nationalism is all glory first. And Jesus said, no, we need to suffer first, then glory. Suffer first, then glory. Why did Jesus suffer? Because he suffered with. He's the suffering with Messiah. He's the one who's broken with the people. He's not demonizing them because they're different. He's not demonizing them because they're of a, a different origin or, or, or ethnicity or a different social economic background or a different race. He actually loves and welcomes and goes to, touches them, hangs out with them and says, you, blessed are you. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the broken. Matthew 5 is all about saying who we've discarded on the edges of society are now the center of the covenant of God. So go to those people and be among those people. In fact, those people are the church. You're not if you're not there. Those people are the church. You're not if you're not there. He was a suffering with Messiah and calls us to be the suffering with people. The second reason he suffered is he challenged the powers that oppress because he's so with those people, and he's suffering with those people, and he loves those people, he said, this can't be. This world cannot be. If you guys are being crushed, the world isn't the way it should be. The world needs to be shalom, and therefore we need to challenge those who are not bringing shalom, but oppression and power. And they need to be called out. And what does that often lead to? Them holding on to their power and crushing those at the edges, and therefore we suffer. He was a suffering with Messiah, and he suffered as he challenged the powers that oppress, and this methodology got Jesus killed. You cannot continue to challenge the powers. You cannot continue to hang out with the oppressed without those people in charge saying, no, that's not the way you should be, and crush you to make you a symbol of how they are holding on to their power. That's what a crucifixion is. It's a symbol of uh, everything that they are in charge. The present day of looking at that perhaps is a lynching tree. That the whites want to uphold their power over the blacks by taking the people who are the noisy, the people who are trying to raise up and say it's enough to be oppressed and put them on the lynching tree. It's a deep symbol that they are not in charge. The cross was a deep symbol that Jesus was not in charge. The Romans were. Power was. And that's why we have resurrection. Resurrection was a declaration by God that said, even though it took his life, I'm giving him his life back. I'm giving life back to vindicate the methodology of Jesus, to lift up and say, this is truly the way of Jesus, and this is truly the, the way of all Messiah followers. This method, suffering first, then glory, suffering first, then glory, suffering with as, a, as the Messiah, suffering as he challenged the poor, that got him killed. The resurrection overturns the ruling and says, no, the cross did not have the final answer. God did. Love did. And that, my siblings in Christ, is shalom. That is the way to shalom. And that's why Jesus, after all of this, could walk in and say, Shalom be with you. 
Shalom be with you. The people on the road to Emmaus, likely Clopas and his wife, got it finally. They ran ahead to tell their story. They ran ahead to declare that this is truly the Messiah. And then Jesus walks in the room, and as he said last week to us in John's Gospel, he says to us in Luke's Gospel, Shalom be with you. So, the challenge to us is those same philosophies and how they adhere to us and how we see the world. Do we see it through a triumphal viewpoint? Do we think that if we pray hard enough or do the right things that we will keep God on our side and the enemies of God are out there and we need to destroy them? Or are we all children of God? Are we all children of God? And some of us just don't know it yet. And in so meeting the others that we can actually hear about how God works in their life instead of assuming we have all of the ways of knowing that how God works, that we can find out from others how God works in their life. What's a priority for God for them? What's a way to hear from them how God is already doing? That removes the exceptionalism. And then we stop gathering together trying to elect the right Christian that we start thinking about how does oppression work? How does it work across the whole nation? And and what are ways we can use our voices as in a democracy to talk about that? At the elections, yes, but even between elections. It's like becoming a Christian only at Easter and Christmas. It misses the point. If we're only good Christians when we're electing people, we're missing the point. Because we can stand up for Jesus every day of the year. We don't have to wait just for election time. I've ranted long enough. I've probably stepped on a few toes, so I need to pray. (laughs) Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the way you challenge us, that you walk into our life and say, you foolish people, how slow you are. And then you take us gently and walk us through Scripture and you walk us through life and you say, this is my path. As it was revealed to me the very first time, it stepped on my toes and I hated hearing it. I'm sure the people on their way to Emmaus probably hated it too. And probably there's people in in this space, among me being one of them, who don't like to hear it afresh. So I ask for your gentleness and your shalom to rest in all of us as we soak in these truths and allow your voice to speak to us. For we ask in your name, amen.